conducted at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Yeah, and, and as we kind of settle for the talk that I'll give now on equanimity, it might be nice just to begin by imagining like what we're going to do today, what we're, we have to do tomorrow. But imagine navigating, living our lives, but in the forefront of doing whatever we have to do, just keeping some semblance of that radiant goodness in mind. So it's not contrived, it's not forced, it's really more about how to keep something that's real, but maybe not predominant, might be subtle, but how to keep it in mind. So the work then is the work of not forgetting this heart is capable of being good, capable of caring and being tender, feeling the sorrows and suffering around me, appreciating the goodness and happiness around me, remaining balanced with all the ambiguity and uncertainty around me, functioning with a friendly heart. Now, can we keep that in mind when we look at the news, when we bump into the people at work or the people in the neighborhood or whoever we bump up against? That's the deal. And uh, the last two of the ten paramis that we've been talking about, I think, since July, equanimity and metta, loving-kindness, that's what we'll be talking about these next couple of weeks. So today I want to spend uh, the time really looking at equanimity, which in some ways is a little bit um, more subtle and maybe more difficult to have a sense of. Or maybe more accurately, we tend, there tends to be more mistrust of equanimity because of its near, what we call in the tradition, the near enemy. Like what is it in terms of our psychological, emotional conditioning that might look like equanimity, but actually is the opposite, like indifference. We might mistake indifference, not caring, for the radiant, beautiful balance of equanimity, equipoise. They're not the same, <laughs> you know, because equanimity is really about the balance and evenness and goodness of equanimity involves intimacy. But when we're indifferent or when we don't care, we've really distanced ourselves. So the balance we might feel when we don't care, it's because we've pushed something away. It's not a liberated, it's, it's not, it doesn't have the quality of freedom. But these four qualities of metta, of love, that we've been talking about, so the basic goodness or friendliness, metta, compassion is karuna, appreciative joy or gladness is um, mudita, and then uh, equanimity is upeka. So these four divine abodes or brahma-viharas or four beautiful emotions, four beautiful attitudes. So we talk about them in different ways. And maybe not surprisingly, equanimity is considered sort of the full, most full blooming of love. And of course, real, that actual radiant balance of equanimity, of course it includes kindness, 
the tenderness of compassion, the responsiveness of compassion, the capacity to appreciate what's beautiful of mudita. All of those qualities are there and that balance isn't thrown off by whatever might arise in the moment. That's what makes equanimity equanimity. I mentioned earlier that, I'll put it again in the chat there, the Sunday Resources have a couple articles, one from Sharon Salzberg on equanimity and one from uh, another Dharma teacher, friend of mine, Shayla, Shayla Catherine. Um, so you might want to get a little bit more background for those who want to do a little study this week. You might want to look at those two articles. Of course, there are many other good resources on equanimity. It's a pretty central um, teaching and the Buddha's great, you know, 45 years of teaching and how those teachings were recorded and kept alive over the many, many centuries. Equanimity is a pretty central teaching. This is from Christina Feldman, one of our elders in the early Buddhist tradition here in the West. Equanimity does not leave kindness, joy, or compassion behind, but is imbued with these qualities which rescue it from indifference or coldness. Like kindness, joy, and compassion, equanimity is not a state but describes a relational way of being with life that rests upon a profound understanding. And what is that profound understanding that equanimity rests upon? And you know how it is when we, fortunately, hopefully, there are some moments where you have really nice conditions. You're around people who are loving, your body feels safe and comfortable, right? Your mind is settled, your heart's open to some degree, and you feel some contentment. Well, it's relatively easy in those nice moments to have the beginning sense of what equanimity is. But that equanimity, of course, is dependent on the conditions being really nice. The circumstance is really nice, so I don't have a problem with anything, right? Because the people I'm around, I really like, and they're nice. And the circumstances and the way my body is, I don't have a problem with, because it's nice. But that's okay, just to learn from those ordinary places in our lives where we have a lot of well-being, a lot of contentment, and, and get a sense, oh, this is what it's like when my heart isn't in a state of reactivity. Even though that non-reactivity is dependent on the conditions being just right, that's okay, we can learn, like, oh, this is what it feels like when the heart, when the mind isn't needing the moment to be different than it is. So in that way we can begin to have a sense of what it might be to live with equanimity, to live with this balance. Because the more we notice that more ordinary equanimity, or uh, one of my teachers, Venerable Analio, this German Buddhist monk, um, he sometimes says this equanimity is object-based in the sense that that balance, that beautiful, radiant, even balance of the heart is there because the objects in the moment are suitable for the heart to be balanced. And if those objects <clears throat> change and all of a sudden I'm cold or there's an obnoxious person around me pushing my buttons or 
you know, I'm a pesky mosquito or whatever it might be, I have indigestion, well then I, that equanimity might be out the door and I'm back to my reactive self. That habit reemerges. But even with our object-based equanimity, we're feeling balanced because the conditions are nice, it can really beg the question in the heart, what would it be like to be balanced no matter the way the conditions or the circumstances were? What would that look like? That freedom, freedom from reactivity, freedom from that critical, judgmental, needy, you know, all those tendencies to be needing, wanting the moment to be different than it is. And here's the thing, that like in terms of deepening our understanding of equanimity, it doesn't mean that suddenly I lose my preferences and I don't know the difference between the room being really cold and the temperature being just right, just the way I like it. We're still human. We'll still have the preferences, our likes and dislikes. They're not going to go anywhere. But equanimity, this kind of love, it's really a combination of wisdom and love that we refer to as equanimity. It, it makes, it gives the heart some immunity because the heart is beginning, like with the deeper equanimity that comes from wisdom, the heart is beginning to sense the beauty and the refuge of that balance, that non-reactivity, even when conditions aren't the way I like them want them to be. But wisdom knows, equanimity knows, this is how it is now. And I, and the heart prefers the pleasure of balance, of non-reactivity, because you know, if there's something to do to make the conditions better, I can still do what maybe is available to do, right? So just because the heart's in a non-reactive loving, balanced, cool, in the sense of non-reactive place, doesn't mean I can't turn the thermostat up or catch the mosquito and put it outside or put on a sweater or move away from somebody who's obnoxious, you know, uh, I have to go. <laughs> or whatever we do to kind of take care of ourselves. So this is the key, like as we begin to play and work with equanimity as both an aspiration, but also a practice, an invitation for how we might relate to the conditions that are here and now. Internal conditions like the attitude of my own mind, the sensations in the body, and external conditions, the sounds in the room, the temperature of the room, the people in the room, all of that, what I see, what I hear, what I touch. So whether the experience is internal or external, this theme of equanimity that I'm inviting us all to experiment with this week, next couple weeks especially, um, we're just exploring that more refined pleasure, wholesome, trustworthy pleasure of balance of contentment, of non-reactivity, of that evenness of mind, even though I know what I like and I don't like, 
can I see everything with not with the mind, the attention, not getting pushed around by my likes and dislikes? So, you know, when you gaze at the room that you're in right now, besides just the computer screen, and you see stuff in your space, whatever that might be, can we be sensitive to all of that without reacting to what the mind finds as disagreeable, unpleasant, or lusting, wanting the stuff that the mind sees as being pleasant, or ignoring all the neutral stuff that don't char isn't charged with pleasantness or unpleasantness. And that's really the work of equanimity, kind of experimenting. Like uh, Christina said, that first quote that I read, it's really uh, this, uh, it, it comes infused with kindness and compassion and appreciation. So it's, it's not a dysfunctional or inhuman emotion, equanimity. And that's, we want, because it's, uh, it challenges the heart, we want to dismiss it as some kind of cold indifference. Like who would want to be married or who would want to be friends with, or who would want a parent that was equanimous? You know, it's sort of like, or who would even want to go hang out with someone who was equanimous? What fun would that be? Because we're kind of in this mode that um, we're sort of addicted to the juiciness of reactivity in our own heart and then in our friends, the people we're around. It's, I mean, as long as their reactivity sort of lines up with my reactivity, we're sort of okay. It's sort of like that's what we we look forward to. Okay, we'll go out and we'll react together in sync with each other, and that will be called a good day or a good evening, hanging out together. And so it's true that that abiding with equanimity, valuing equanimity, even on a cognitive or intellectual level, just the idea of equanimity and learning to have a newfound appreciation for even the concept of equanimity, like the idea of Mark or whoever we are, you know, that that would be the, the aspirational way to be relating, living my life, relating through this, this radiant, even, non-reactive balance. And of course, even when the triggers are there in the present moment and some reactive pattern does get triggered and I flinch or I reach because I want it, then wisdom and love, equanimity will have a balanced way of relating to that reactivity. Oh yeah, honey, that's, it's like this sometimes. Sometimes you react with greed, sometimes you react with horror, or with aversion, or with fear. Sometimes your heart closes down and you're numb and disconnected. Sometimes you're manic and obsessive and all over the place. Sometimes it's like this. And that's really the wisdom part of equanimity. It always knows that even when the mind's a mess, that wisdom knows how to step back. And then once wisdom steps back, I mean, it's not, we don't actually step back, of course, but I think you know what I mean, that 
once there's some space, then equanimity, the trust in equanimity reasserts itself. Oh yeah, awareness can be here in a balanced way in a way that's not confused by the likes and not confused by the disliking, not confused by anything. I gave a similar talk here. I'm at um, IMS, Insight Meditation Center in Barrie, Massachusetts, teaching up at the Forest Refuge. It's a wonderful place for long-term practice. So people come often for a month or longer to practice and mostly or semi-independently, there are teachers here like myself, and we every student gets to meet with a teacher uh, twice a week, and there's a couple Dharma talks every week, but there's really not a lot of scheduled time, so all the retreatants are finding their own way and, uh, and working with this sort of balance. And I gave a similar talk on Tuesday night here on equanimity, and I mentioned this wonderful simile from Achan Cha that I want to pass on, because I think it just helps us, like, in terms of this encouragement to explore equanimity in daily life. So Ajahn Chah, if you don't know, is a very well-known Thai uh, Buddhist monk in the Thai forest tradition. He died maybe in the early, mid-90s, 1990s. But is quite influential in, the, in Buddhism, especially Theravada, early Buddhism, coming here to the West. And people like Jack Kornfield practice as a monk with Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumedho, who's an important teacher in our lineage. And Ajahn Chah uses really, I think, powerful simile that's easy for us to remember. And he said it's like somebody puts a solid log in the middle of a, you know, a pretty substantial river and good current lots of twists and turns and places where there are rapids and places where it's a little slower. And you have, of course, two banks. On the right, you have happiness, pleasantness. On the left, you have pain and unhappiness, good and bad. Any dualities you see as the two banks. And this simile is just a description of what our practice, like an image for our practice. We're the log, you know, this life and this sense of being a practitioner, being somebody interested in freedom. We're the log. And the idea of the log is not to get confused, not just with pain and unhappiness, but also not get confused, get entangled with ideas of happiness, of me being saved. So this equanimity is really important because, you know, even as we have more of a sense of the Buddhist teachings or more of a sense of spiritual practice and the peace and just an intuition for the freedom that comes with real spiritual practice, if we turn that into some idea, then we're going to get entangled. We're going to want to become the person who's free, who's happy. And that attachment, that identification with the idea is running into the right bank, getting caught in the weeds, getting caught in the little trees on the banks. How to stay in the current of the moment. Because we're going to have ideas about what we like and we're going to have ideas about what we don't like. <laughs> 
what we're wanting to save us, what we're afraid is going to doom us, right? We know how to scare ourselves. We know how to entrance ourselves with ideas of being saved and getting what we want. And both are considered off-ramps or ways of entanglement. And this idea, this attitude of equanimity that we're hearing about, and then I'm really inviting us to reflect on it, to keep it in mind, to use these similes and these ideas, so that we actually start to practice, or you could say contemplate, like how does this evenness, this balance, this equipoise, this way of non-reactivity, how might it look in this moment? So it's not forced, you know, equanimity. Uh, a long time ago, I did a three, I did several three-month retreats here at IMS. Um, they have an annual three-month retreat, and back then, Michelle McDonald was one of the teachers, and uh, she had this really wonderful thing that she said near the end of one of the long retreats. She said to us in one of the talks. You know what's great about long meditation retreats? You might be able to shed a little bit of your false equanimity. Because this is a real shadow. You know, this is why we, there are really these three parts where we hear about equanimity. And then you're on your, on your own, you contemplate it, you think about it, but you think about it in light of your actual experience in the moment. So you're taking the ideas and you're just checking out are they in any way, is this idea, this concept, these teachings on equanimity, is it in any way functional in terms of helping me connect with my actual experience, functional in being a human being right now, you know, with this kind of heart, this kind of circumstance, this kind of conditioning? How might these ideas express themselves in a functional, useful way in my life? Or should I put them on a shelf? for a while and work with some other theme from the Dharma, from the Buddhist teachings. And that's how it is, because you know how you can't help, you know, when we're digging in, we're going to hear lots of ideas, but some of them will be resonant in the sense that when we bring them to mind, they seem to be applicable to the moment that I'm living. They seem actually functional, useful, like I have more degrees of freedom when I keep equanimity in mind in this particular situation in my life. It's a functional attitude, a functional way for the mind to be relating, to be perceiving, to be showing up. But we can also get in this habit of forcing it, or this sort of contrivance where we think, I should be equanimous. So then it becomes a kind of imitation, or we're pretending to be somebody who's not touched by the world. Like another simile from the Buddhist teachings is like a solid rock or a big tree that's deeply rooted that's unmoved by the winds of circumstance. Gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. These are the sort of standard way the Buddha would talk about the uncertainty of life. They're called the, the eight vicissitudes or the eight worldly winds, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, 
fame and disrepute and praise and blame. And the image that he used or the simile was like a rock that remains unmoved or a big tree with deep, with deep roots that remains unmoved. But you see how that could be something that we, we sort of take a shortcut. Well, I'll just imagine or pretend that I don't care. You know, so you're treating me, you're insulting me, but you know, I don't care. But then maybe I'm not being real, like actually that really hurts. <laughs> I really hurt, <laughs> you know. So real equanimity isn't having to pretend that nothing matters or to pretend that I'm not excited or pretend that I'm not hurt. Real equanimity is to trust that exposure exposure to what's being felt, to what's moving in our heart, what's moving around us and other people, really being sensitive and realizing, I don't need to be afraid of feeling and seeing and being touched by everything that's moving right now. That's real equanimity. So when you contemplate equanimity, it's always in the context of being sensitive to the way that it is. That's the middle place, right? We hear about it, we hear about it and study it enough so we can contemplate it in real time as we're in a moment of our life, present, sensitive, exposed, feeling what we're feeling, knowing it's like this now, it feels like this now. As uh, Sylvia Borstein says, this quote I like, and this is from her book on the Paramis, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake. Again, her name is Sylvia Borstein, one of the teachers who founded Spirit Rock in uh, <clears throat> north of San Francisco, one of our big uh, grandmother institutions in our early Buddhist tradition here, along with IMS, where I am right now in Massachusetts. But Sylvia wrote this book, uh, um, what is it now again? I forget. Anyway, the book on the Paramis, pay attention for goodness sake. And uh, in her chapter on equanimity, she says something like, everything is breathtakingly the only way that it can be. My heart opening with equanimity can respond with compassion. It really, it's the equanimity, it's the radiant, enlivened balance that allows us to respond appropriately. In some moments to respond with joy and appreciation, in other moments to respond with tenderness and care, in other moments responding with friendliness, and in other moments getting the heck out of there, because that's the, you know, that's the appropriate response. When we're around a rattlesnake, the appropriate response is to carefully back away, right? We don't embrace the rattlesnake, but we don't have to lose our balance as we carefully back away from the rattlesnake or whatever we, whatever seems most useful. So we want to remember it's not something we pretend, equanimity, it's something that we're discovering. It's a way of relating that, in a way, initially, it's kind of we're unearthing this way of relating because generally it's not familiar. 
What's familiar are these different ways of reactivity, grabbing what we like, pushing away what we don't like, ignoring everything that's neutral, neither something we like nor something we dislike. So we have so many habits of how we relate to all of our experiences. And now we're going to be experimenting with something newer, which is to keep in mind this radiant, beautiful balance. You might, some of you might sense it as a kind of inner stillness. Some of you might senses, sense it as an inner balance or an inner silence, an inner peace. Some of you might sense it as more of a radiant love, nimble love that isn't afraid of anything. So it's, we'll find, each of us, we'll find our own way to keep that in mind and to learn to trust it so we can try it on. Okay, I'm going into this meeting with these people. Maybe I could actually be curious, like what would balance look like being in this meeting with these people now? Or I've got to drive 200 miles to see my aunt who needs my help moving. Okay, well, what would balance look like doing that? Or I've got to, you know, deal with this sticky situation. I have to send this email that I don't want to write. Okay, well, what does balance look like, feel like when I'm typing away, when I'm thinking about what to say? when I'm realizing there's no way to do this perfectly. <laughs> it's going to be messy, even if I'm as skillful as possible. What is balance? That balance that comes right with exposure. So not balance because I'm distancing, but balance because I'm learning not to be afraid. Yeah, just thinking about that capacity to be that log, you know, because the river's always changing, the banks, the sometimes the rapids, sometimes the slow current. And how to be that log, knowing that happiness is there and unhappiness is over there on the other side, but the, the log is really learning to be content, to kind of move through the moment like really value, valuing the balance, not leaving any trace. Somebody mentioned this teaching recently from Ajahn Sushito. He's a student of Ajahn Chah's, one of, the, one of our senior Western monastics. Um, he's English by birth, <coughs> from Great Britain. But he teaches often in the United States, including here at the Forest Refuge. He'll be here next uh, fall, I believe. But anyway, uh, he has this really powerful teaching. He says something, I'm just paraphrasing, instead of thinking that my life moves through time, it's more like we're moving through karma. So as each moment arises and passes, what it is, is it's kind of a karmic situation that arises and passes, like the circumstances that my heart, my sensitive heart, is facing right now, giving a Dharma talk in this weird Zoom world, you know, where we're all little rectangles, and 
in an empty room by myself and you know that's the karmic situation that is arising because so many causes and conditions I'm not blaming myself for this particular karmic situation but it is arising based on past causes and conditioning causes and conditions right same as it is for you all of us this is karma showing up and then the next moment is slightly different or maybe very different depending on how things are unfolding you know maybe somebody's dog just jumped on their lap or cat just vomited in the corner or you know whatever it is at your house so that's karma showing up so it's like here we are this big sensitive heart I always think of the statues I had as a Catholic growing up of Saint Joseph and Saint Francis and Mother Mary and this, these statues, you know, I, I had three, those three in my room as a kid. You know, they're 12 inches high or something. And they all had these hearts that sort of stood outside of the statue a little bit. You know, like no skin, no ribs, just a raw, sensitive heart. And that's a powerful spiritual image, isn't it? So here we are, this sensitive heart, learning not to be afraid of the exposure, the sensitivity, and in fact, we're cultivating sensitivity. We want it, even though it's really hard to bear, because that profound sensitivity really helps us realize the possibility of equanimity, this fearless balance, this fearless evenness. Not, nothing surprises the sensitive heart. Now it's extremely painful, now it's extremely pleasant, now it's extremely neutral, well, yeah, now it's like this. It's just the next thing as karma continues to show up, causes and conditions are continually playing themselves out globally, locally, subjectively, personally, in our own experience, right? Isn't that true? That we're just in this place of constant exposure to karma, to causes and conditions. And, and it's kind of a, a, a different um, perspective, a reversal. So instead of a sense of a specific me, a permanent me, moving through time, a spaceship of me, you know, kind of traveling along through time, we have this radiant, completely sensitive heart, feeling heart, knowing mind, and in this great space of sensitivity, love, exposure, causes and conditions do their dance, coming and going according to causes and conditions. This unfathomable display of causality, you know. And we don't even have to decide, like, which of that, did I set in motion, or you set in motion, or just got set in motion somewhere else. We don't need a story that, you know, this terrible thing happened because I did something a long time ago. That's all contrived. That's just, you know, projection, basically. Unhelpful projection. But what we do know is that things are lawful, that they're unfolding causes and conditions, and there's a sensitive heart, and there's this possibility of being balanced, even loving, 
not afraid. This is a poem by Jane Hirschfeld. She's a wonderful poet and a practicing Buddhist. And it's called Late Prayer. I think I got this from Patrice Kelsch a long time ago. One of our teachers um, used it. It's a really beautiful poem. Late Prayer. Tenderness does not choose its own uses. It goes out to everything equally. Circling rabbit and hawk. Look, in the iron bucket, a single nail, a single ruby, all the heavens and hells, they rattle in the heart and make one sound. I'll read it again. Tenderness does not choose its own uses. It goes out to everything equally. Circling rabbit and hawk. Look, in the iron bucket, a single nail, a single ruby. All the heavens and hells, they rattle in the heart and make one sound. So as we uh, hopefully commit to this practice, um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it really needs to start from a, a sense of faith or confidence that equanimity just might be a functional, beautiful way to live our lives, way to be relating to experience moment by moment. Because if we don't hold that, like if we can't generate some confidence, we're not going to do that middle part, which is the experimenting, the contemplation. So we hear about equanimity, then we start to contemplate, we start to use it, we start to integrate it, and that sets up the third level of wisdom, which is discovering something about the nature of the heart. Because ultimately equanimity is really arises out of the nature of the mind, the nature of the heart itself. This non-fear of equanimity isn't something you and I have to do ultimately. I don't know if you remember, but at the end of the guided meditation today, uh, you can... Um, just learn to rest and trust equanimity. So we're really learning like, I don't have to do the equanimity. But that ultimate practice of realizing the equanimity that is there, discovering the balance, the non-fear, the non-reactivity, it really depends on that middle part where you're experimenting with it. You're kind of lining up the teaching with your own experience and really seeing the congruence, that somehow the ideas that you picked up from your teachers, our teachers, the Buddha, <clears throat> really line up with our experience. <clears throat> and that's a lot of the work, and that's the encouragement for today. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.